This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Defense Department's Jedi is dead tonight. The department says it'll roll out an indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity contract that it will award to more than one vendor for its cloud capability. Federal News Network reports the department's acting chief information officer, John Sherman, says the solicitation for the new contract will come in October. More on this in a moment. Three cloud providers have clearance from the Defense Innovation Unit to provide their services to DIU users. Google, Zscaler, and McAfee installed prototype solutions at DIU last May. GCN reports the companies have built zero trust principles into their solutions. The Defense Department may make the COVID vaccine mandatory for uniformed personnel once the Food and Drug Administration clears it for regular use. Pentagon spokesman John Kirby says if the FDA approves it, department leaders will, quote, take a look at what our options are going forward. Military.com reports troops currently have to get 17 vaccines, including shots for measles, mumps, and the flu. The Pentagon will call its new cloud vehicle the Joint Warfighter Cloud Capability. The, the Pentagon says it canceled JEDI because its requirements have changed since the original solicitation. Jack Wilmer's chief executive officer at Core Force, he's former deputy CIO for cybersecurity and chief information security officer at the Pentagon. Jack, welcome. It's good to see you. What's your reaction to what we learned yesterday about the cancellation of the JEDI contract? Yeah, thanks, Francis. Um, so, you know, I would say it's it's really a cool opportunity for the department to be able to start fresh. Uh, so they've obviously still got enterprise cloud computing requirements and needs. Uh, they've earlier this year announced the uh, Joint All-Domain Command and Control Initiative, the uh, AI Data Acceleration Initiative, and both of those are going to be heavily dependent on enterprise cloud. So uh, DOD also has the same unique requirements in terms of being able to support tactical environments and ensure synchronization across security domains. And so I think uh, you know, all of these are things that, uh, you know, the promise of an enterprise cloud is going to be able to help the department solve. Uh, and so I'm really excited that they're going to have the opportunity to, you know, hopefully get multiple uh, enterprise clouds in place soon. If this is an opportunity to start fresh, how would you like to see the department do that to get this capability to the warfighter as soon as possible? It's three years behind schedule now. Yeah, I, I think it's a really good point. And, you know, the good news is, though this procurement is three years behind schedule, uh, the department has still been able to make pretty substantial progress in the past three years. And so when you look at things like um, the CVR that was rolled out during the pandemic that's evolved into DOD 365, uh, many of the challenges that the department set out to address with JEDI are things that they've actually been able to solve through the rollout of these other uh, enterprise cloud capabilities. And so obviously, in 
infrastructure cloud is a very different thing than a, um, you, you know, managed service uh, in, in terms of something like DoD 365. Uh, however, there's a lot of security policies and other things that uh, the department has been able to already update. Uh, I think there's still gonna be a lot more work to do uh, as they roll out the enterprise uh, cloud infrastructure, but uh, I think they're gonna be able to take advantage of uh, some of the major changes that they've done over the past few years. One of the things that strikes me that's changed dramatically in the last three years, as John Sherman talked about this yesterday, is that cloud has become so much more a commodity than it was three years ago. Is that potentially part of the opportunity that you see here, Jack, that the, the Pentagon, maybe the reason that it's decided to set this up as an IDIQ instead of uh, a, 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 basically it's starting from scratch on a new contract? Yeah, I, I think without a question. So, you know, and, and cloud has been a commodity for a while now, but I think that where we've really seen some advances are on uh, things like interoperability. So the ability to, you know, have a workload on one cloud, uh, move it to another, have workflows across multiple cloud providers, uh, things that the department should absolutely be able to take advantage of. So I think that uh, the fact that the uh, cloud industry has evolved over the past couple of years, uh, substantially more capabilities available, I think are also uh, key factors in there. What do you expect to see us learn about this between now and October when the solicitation is supposed to come out? Or are we pretty much going to sit on it between now and then until we see what the solicitation actually says? You know, I don't know the department's plans, but I, I do know industry well enough to know that we're going to hear uh, lots of things about lots of capabilities that are available, uh, probably in an attempt to influence, you know, what the government ultimately comes out and contracts for. And I think that, you know, my perspective is that if you look at uh, the real key thing that the department's been trying to do since day one with the Enterprise Cloud Initiative is to accelerate the delivery of capability for the warfighter, to get capability into the warfighter's hands faster. Uh, much of that requires policy changes on the government side, uh, and that's some of the stuff that we've been able to work. But I think that there's also still tremendous capability that exists in the industry that are going to really help uh, to accomplish that mission. And I think when you look at the tie-in again with JADC2, that Joint All-Domain Command and Control and AI Data Acceleration Initiative, I think that's going to really help industry uh, position uh, what capabilities they want to be able to have included with the cloud offerings. Does the position of JADC2 as being so integral to what the future fight looks like, Jack, make buying this cloud different than buying some other cloud, or are the principles the same in your view? Yeah, I would say uh, th there's some differences, uh, but the principles are generally the same. So, uh, you know, the way that I look at it, DOD has had an urgent need for this cloud for a number of years now. And I think that the the focus on JADC2 just even amplifies more uh, what that ur urgent need is. I think in terms of the JADC2 focus, a lot of the emphasis has got to be on um, understanding that we're not going to be able to take all the data that's required for that environment and push it back to CONUS. You know, it really is all about the data. It's about enabling the processing of that data, uh, the analytics, the, the types of things that we can run on top of that to happen closer to where the data is. And so I think that some of those principles are the things that are driving uh, the department's analysis of even across all the hyperscale providers that exist, which are the clouds that are going to be best enable uh, the department to be able to work in that construct. It's interesting that you mentioned the, the CONUS versus OCONUS because when the OCONUS cloud strategy came out a couple of weeks ago, I got two different notes from two different people that don't know each other that said, this must mean Jedi's going out the window. Is that 
Was that a sense that you had as well? Because nobody seemed to be really too surprised by this. They just were surprised that it was yesterday. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, the way that I look at it is it has been kind of building to that. And and at the end of the day, what's what's most important is that the department get in as expeditious of a manner as possible an enterprise capa- cloud capability in place. And I think that what you've seen is the news building from uh, the announcement of JADC2, the uh, initiation of the AI Data Acceleration Initiative, a number of other mission capabilities that are dependent on an enterprise cloud. Uh, and then obviously JEDI has been mired in litigation for a number of years. And so I think that uh, the department has this urgent need to get the cloud capability in place. And I think that when you look at uh, the mission impact, um, the department looked at you know the acquisition strategy and, and found that this is probably going to be what's going to enable them to get that in place uh, as quickly as possible. And I think the other key thing to keep in mind is the department has always had a strategy of multiple cloud vendors. It was never intended to be only one enterprise cloud. Uh, that was really part of the journey towards getting to multiple clouds. And, and again, a lot of the rationale behind that single cloud was that we had a lot that we had to learn on the department side uh, in terms of new capabilities and, and uh, policy changes, that sort of thing. And I think that what you've seen is over the past couple of years, the department's actually been able to knock a lot of those objectives down through MillCloud to uh, CVR uh, into O365, that sort of thing. So I think at the end of the day, uh, it's really a culmination of events that's enabled the department to really just move to the next phase in its cloud strategy, which is bringing in multiple vendors. Jack Wilmer, thanks very much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Thanks, Francis. Great to see you. Coming next, more money for defense might not mean better defense. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the harsh realities of spending more on national security. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. The Biden administration's defense budget request is $715 billion in constant dollars. That's more than the Pentagon spent during the military buildup of the 1980s, but the size and the capability of the force is far less today. Major General Arnold Panaro, U.S. Marine Corps retired CEO of the Panaro Group. He's chairman of the board of the National Defense Industrial Association and a member of the Defense Business Board, and he's author of the new book, The Ever-Shrinking Fighting Force. Arnold, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. You wrote your own book blurb so eloquently on LinkedIn yesterday. You wrote this, in constant dollars, DOD is spending more than it did at the peak of the Reagan buildup for a sub substantially smaller and in some cases less capable fighting force. How did we get here, Arnold? Well, Francis, always a privilege to join you on this wonderful program. And I would say as we come out of Afghanistan after 20 years, we're at a serious inflection point for our national security. During the last 20 years, China has built up their military capability, both in terms of quantity, but also in quality, and particularly made advances in some of the key technological areas that are gonna be the basis of future conflict. So we've got to focus here in the Pentagon, in the Congress, not on how much we spend, but what we get for what we spend. As you mentioned, and as I outlined in, in my new book, The Ever-Shrinking Fighting Force, we're spending more in constant dollars in the peak of the Reagan buildup that many considered the golden age for defense 
the Biden budget is larger than the largest Trump budget, and yet we have one million fewer active duty military on the job. We have 35 to 40 percent fewer fighting units, whether it's Army divisions and brigade, Navy battle force ships, Air Force fighter squadrons, and tactical fighter inventory. So we just are not getting the bang for the buck we should for the dollars we spend. And I hate to say it, the Chinese are getting more for their yuan than we're getting for the U.S. dollar. So we've got to make some fundamental reforms and changes, and that's what my new book is all about. The contrast, Arnold, is striking to me. Congresswoman Luria, the vice chair of the Hask, was on the program a couple of weeks ago and reminded me that in the peak of the buildup, the Navy had 600 ships in its fleet, and we're at about 300 today, and thinking about getting to 355 in 20 years. How do we get that balance back that you're referring to, Arnold, about getting best value for the dollars that we're spending, not even thinking about quantity and, and power, just how do we get that balance back? Well, she's spot on, Francis. I'm glad you brought that up, because, for example, in the Navy, the amount of money we're spending on Navy ships has gone up 70%, but the number of ships we are buying for those dollars has gone down 70%. So there are three major areas where we've got to make significant changes in the Congress and the Pentagon to get the output that we need so that we are better, faster, and cheaper than China, our pacing threat and major adversary. One is we've got to reduce DOD's massive overhead, which has gone from 5% to a little under 20% of the budget. It's over $350 billion a year, a million people working in the back office and headquarters, and we all know that conflict, future conflicts going to be won by warfighters, not by people in the back office. Uh, we've also got to change the DOD acquisition system. We spend over three, $400 billion a year on goods and services, supplies and equipment. And about all you can say politely about the outcome or the output is spend more, take longer, get less. Many people have labored at this. Frank Kendall, Ash Carter, Ellen Ward have done yeoman's work to try to improve it. But it's not how far we've come, it's how far we need to go. And we're a long way off from basically getting the bang for the buck in the acquisition area. And Congress has got to reform the way it does business. They have three overlapping and duplicative processes, the budget resolution, authorizations and appropriation. It's totally broken. They never get their work done on time. We haven't had a, a full year appropriations bills on time on one October for 25 years. We've started the last 20 years with continuing resolutions. There's no way we're gonna keep pace with China and get the advances we need if we don't make some of these fundamental changes. Again, my book has got 27 chapters and 500 pages, and I outline specifically in many different areas what we need to change to basically get a better outcome than we're getting today. And I apologize in advance. I, I went through this book. There's no possible way I can do it justice in the amount of time that you and I have. We've talked about that back office system on a number of occasions, Arnold. The administration is undertaking a, a look at the same kinds of reform efforts that previous administrations have looked at. How would you like to see them look at that back office differently than previous secretaries of defense have? I mean, I think they have to say, I think they need to basically understand the compelling timing threat that we have. The good news is there's bipartisan recognition in the Congress that China is the pacing threat. The administration recognizes it as well. And so I think it gives everybody, they feel the pressure and feel the heat to basically get more bang for the buck that the dollars we spend. And frankly, 
They've got to take this on. Mark Esper sort of got started with David Norquist, looking at the 28 defense agencies that have hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people. The Defense Logistics Agency does more business with the Department of Defense than does Lockheed Martin, the largest contractor, and yet they don't use commercial best practices in the way they go about doing their business. If you go on one of the online retailers as a private citizen, you'll find out, you know, do they have the product you want, how much it's gonna cost, when you're gonna get it. If you're the tank turret mechanic repairman in the Army and you order a part, you don't know if DLA has it, you don't know when you're gonna get it, and you don't know how much it costs. So bringing proven world-class business practices into the Department of Defense, reducing the minute management layers, reducing the hundreds of thousands of people that work in these areas. We also have three over 300,000 of our most expensive and most valuable troops, active duty military, serving in inherently non-governmental jobs. So we need to get them out of the rear with the gear and put them back at the tip of the spear. Arnold, nobody knows this stuff better than you do. It's great. I'm grateful to have you on the program this and every time you're here. Thank you, my friend. You're quite welcome. You can find a link to Arnold's book at govmatters.tv slash resources, the ever-shrinking fighting force. Up next, keeping the Pentagon in the international security loop. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the problems ahead if the State Department goes solo. I'll be right back. Welcome back to Drawdown in Afghanistan's highlighting the challenges of security assistance the U.S. provides around the world. One proposal is to consolidate those programs the Defense Department shares with state into a single program at Foggy Bottom. That plan, though, would be a big, a quote, big mistake, according to Brent Sadler, senior fellow for Naval Warfare and Advanced Technology at the Heritage Foundation. He's writing about security cooperation and assistance programs with co-author Janae Diaz in Breaking Defense. Brent, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. You write in this piece that America spends billions each year on security cooperation and assistance programs. Your sense is that uh, we're not getting results to match the investment. Why so? Well, so some of these programs have come and gone too quickly. They've been managed uh, with uh, milestones or markers of success after they've been implemented. So they tend to diverge from their initial uh, intention or plan. Uh, that's not to say that we haven't had successes in the past. One program in particular that I'd like to draw attention to is the Maritime Security Initiative, which was narrowly focused. It was also focused on a small group of countries, but it had a very clear objective, which was improved maritime domain awareness in a very tight geographic region, the South China Sea. So if you have certain kind of characteristics, certain requirements, uh, it's very likely and it's very it's very possible that you can get an interagency, a large group of groups of people working together on a unity of effort because it's these programs are very complex. They have lots of myriad authorities. And then, of course, you have Congress that is also has lots of authorities that they place on top and uh, monitoring and oversight that they have. You write in this piece, state consults with defense on its security assistance designs. Defense then implements state programs as well as its own security cooperation programs, such as multinational military exercises and military training and advising. Does that model work well now broadly? And where does it potentially go off track in the execution the way you described it? Well, I, I think it all comes down to people. 
the personalities involved. And so when you have groups of people working in across the interagency at USAID State, Department of Defense, and even the different services like Navy, Air Force, uh, Marine Corps, it's really important that you have the personalities in, in place that actually are willing to work and collaborate together. The processes that are in place uh, do allow that, but again, it comes down to personalities. And, and I do think that if you have an overarching strategy and you have guidance from the top, it makes it more likely to empower that kind of collaboration and camaraderie across agencies that otherwise it's really a, a challenge to do because there's just so much complication in the, the funding lines. You write, uh, reforms to security assistance should encourage or compel state to design its programs in closer coordination with the Pentagon. Where should that coordination be focused in your view? Well, I think it depends on the program in question. So if it, is, if it has to do with institution building, then that's probably not DOD. It might be in the Department of Justice. But if it is something like we're talking about maritime domain awareness, that's very likely going to be Navy and it's very likely to be Space Force in the, in the near future. Uh, it really needs to be what is the strategic objective, uh, and it needs to be narrowly defined, and then it should be that agency that's best placed with the expertise and the personnel that can be sent downrange to the, the targeted country to help in the most effective means. I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, Brent, that one of the proposals on the table is to move this all to state. Why is that not a great idea in your view? Well, I think any time that you would put, with, without a lot of conditions and, uh, you know, emphasis on the personalities to work together in an interagency approach that's, that's A, sustainable, and B, most importantly, delivering results, uh, you, might have, you, know, you may have distraction. You may diverge from what the objectives are for the military security assistance. And that's really the focus of the, of the piece that Janae and I wrote, is that, that that was missing. And so... Working with Department of Defense on identifying very specific military operational needs, uh, such as access, interoperability, it could also be having a country with a specific capability, like cutters, or maritime police or coast guard cutters. That has to be form foremost in any of the planning, and it may not necessarily be resident in the thinking at State Department unless you have DOD military planners involved in that process, deeply involved in the process throughout. Brent, thanks very much for coming on to talk about this. <clears throat> Excuse me, regards to uh, your co-author, Janae, and thanks for your time today. Well, thank you very much for having me on, and aloha from Hawaii. You can find a link to that piece, and you can find every episode of our show at govmatters.tv. And don't forget, you get a preview of every show and a recap when you sign up for our daily newsletters. You just enter your email in the red box on the website. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by James Mahoney and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C.
Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group. You have been listening to the Government Matters Podcast, sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. Stay tuned for a brief interview with Tony Bardo of Hughes. Tony Bardo is Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, it's great to talk to you again. I thought of you the other day because I saw another agency make an award on the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions contract at General Services Administration. You have been telling me for a long time about how important this contract is. Why is it so important, Tony? It's so important because the agencies have been dealing with 20-year-old network technology um, for 20 years. And, and basically, this is their opportunity to use this important contract to modernize the network, to keep up with constituents who are demanding more digital-centric services. And the government needs the, the network to, uh, to step up to those uh, expectations. This is a long-term contract. How is it built so that when Hughes rolls out something cool, say, five years from now, that the agencies will be able to access that? The agencies will be able to leverage new technologies that come down the line during the life of this contract? GSA's got a good plan for that. They've got a plan for the on-ramping of, of services. Uh, frankly, the, the, the current SD-WAN movement is an example of that. SD-WAN did not exist when EIS was awarded. But GSA's been working hard with the agencies and with the primes to add these services. So what's important is that the agencies demand that the, um, that, that the primes offer various kinds of SD-WAN solutions. There are a number of them out there. They need to not just offer their direct example examples of uh, proprietary services, but there are multiple platforms. Agencies should really meet with the primes and say, here's what I want. Here's what I want to, here's where I want to go over the next 10 to 15 years. Time is of the essence, it strikes me, Tony, because uh, there's a countdown clock going here for agencies to get these contracts awarded. Um, if you're just starting this process at the beginning, first of all, shame on you, I guess. But um, secondly, what's the role of the vendor to help uh, uh, an agency move the ball? Well, I think, I think the idea here is to, if you haven't gotten started yet, make sure you're asking the right questions of industry, that you're asking for the right kind of services. If you're still s stuck on an RFP or a format that asks for older technology, there are, and, and there are unfortunately, Francis, a number of RFPs and fair opportunities out there that have asked for the old stuff. And it's it's like, the, the to, to some extent, I'm, I'm, I'm advocating for timeline be damned, you ought to, stop stop the presses start over again and recast the requirement to reflect what's what's needed uh, what agencies should expect from their networks today we just have uh, 20 seconds left tony you have you're casting this as an opportunity for agencies to transform the way they do things and not just write a new contract it sounds like oh absolutely it's 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 critical it's the right time the technology is very very fresh and can carry the agencies for a long time forward. Tony Bardo of Hughes, great to talk to you, my friend. Thank you, Francis.